This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. The 7th Avenue Project is next. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, what happened to me could happen to any man, woman, or child in this nation. Could be wrongly convicted of something and spend the rest of their life in prison. Rick Walker nearly did spend his life behind bars in what's been described as a combination of sloppy police work, prosecutorial excess, and a negligent defense. Walker was convicted of a murder he had nothing to do with. He spent a dozen years in California prisons before finally being freed in 2003. In this multi-part series on the 7th Avenue Project, we're going to hear Rick Walker's story in his own words and the words of others. And on next week's show, Balancing the Scales, the fight to get reparations for the years Rick Walker lost. Stay tuned. It's closing time at the car repair shop where Rick Walker works as a mechanic. He's giving me a tour. This is my workstation over here. As you can see around the shop, we have a lot of -of state-of-the-art equipment here. Rick's proud of the place, and you can see why. The floor of this shop is practically sparkling. I've never seen a cleaner one. Well, I actually love the fact that this shop stays clean. When we spill something on the floor, it comes up. You can actually the floor is not the only thing that's clean. There's a couple of immaculate 60s-era cars that Rick's been working on. I, they usually give me all the old cars, like this is a 68 California Special Mustang. It's a rare Mustang, right, and I'm, I'm doing work on that. And I really appreciate this job. I think this job was meant for me, and um, I appreciate everybody that works here, too. Great bunch of guys. Rick's worked here since the summer of 2003. That's when he got out of Mule Creek State Prison. A family friend got him the job, and it allowed him to pick up a career that was cut short 12 years before. Back then, he was a freelance mechanic, well-known in his hometown of East Palo Alto. My name was Troubleshooter, and everybody knew me as Troubleshooter because if you had a problem with a car and your mechanic couldn't fix it, something, take it to Troubleshooter, he more likely can figure it out. At that point in his life, Rick had had only minor brushes with the law a drug possession charge, an attempted car theft, but not much else, and no violent crime. Then, in 1991, he was implicated in a murder. We'll have more details on the case later in this show, but for now, let me give you the bare outlines. In March of that year, the body of Lisa Hopewell was found in her Cupertino apartment, bound and stabbed to death. Police picked up a man named Rasan Bowers. He was a 19-year-old drug dealer who knew Lisa Hopewell and whose fingerprints were on the duct tape used to bind her. He gave police a series of stories with a changing cast of characters, finally fingering Rick Walker as the culprit, with himself, Rasan Bowers, as reluctant participant. See, Bowers knew Rick Walker was Lisa Hopewell's ex-boyfriend, and he knew police considered Walker a person of interest. In fact, Walker says that in concocting his story, Bowers took his cues from the detectives. How Rasan came to actually put me involved in the crime was the investigators who were investigating the crime showed him a picture of me. Now, there was no other direct evidence beyond Rasan Bauer's account tying Rick Walker to the crime. But the police and the Santa Clara DA's office 
went ahead and built their case on Rasan Bauer's story and decided to charge Rick Walker with homicide. Bowers himself would eventually be revealed as the real killer, but that would take more than a decade. In the meantime, Rick Walker was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 26 years to life. He spent the next 12 years in some of California's toughest prisons, including San Quentin, Folsom, and Pelican Bay. Rick says he was pessimistic from the start. He saw the deck was stacked against him, and the political climate in California wasn't helping. When somebody like Pete Wilson gets on national television and say, I'm tough on crime, lock lock him up and throw away the key. When he says that term, that means green light, fellas, just go get him. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, And we'll sort it all out later. Basically, I knew that they felt I was good for this crime. You know, and... Didn't take me long. I called my mother on the second day of trial and told him, I said, they're going to railroad me for this month. They are fitting to do me for this crime. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. The stage is set. And that's it. It was set. At that moment early on when you realized that they had constructed a case mm-hmm. and that you know, you were facing potentially a life sentence or even, I mean, at some point it must have occurred to you that it could be a death penalty case. Well, that was on paper. That was on paper. Mm-hmm. So how did you feel? I mean, I can't imagine how it would feel to be in that situation. You get numb, you know. You get numb. It's like when I was a child, I got burned on my arm really bad, you know really bad and after about an hour I didn't even feel it no more it it stopped stinging because my body took over and started I had pus and everything all on my arm you know and my body just took over and started creating its built making its own medicine but I was actually in shock and numb to the fact that my arm was on fire, burning. I was just, I was numb. I wasn't even on this planet, man. I was somewhere else. I was, I was gone, you know. No crying, no screaming, no yelling, none of that. Something you would expect an innocent person to do. Just climb the wall, screaming and kicking and clawing and trying to get at the detectives for lying on them and all None of that ever happened to me, you know, and people like, look at him. He just sits there. You think you were perceived as not caring because you were just, you know, that stunned? That's exactly the way I was perceived. I was perceived as people looked at me and said, look at him. He just sits there like it's nothing, you know. He's on trial for murder and look at him. He just, he's gawking at us like, you know, it's nothing. He'd do it again in a minute, you know, but it, it, it wasn't me. I was just so shocked sounds like you're saying that emotionally you were resigned to it early on on the second day of trial i knew i was being railroaded okay and short of some miraculous thing happening i was resigned to the fact that i was going to prison for the rest of my life were you by saying that to yourself by you know, sort of accepting it yourself? Were you trying to toughen yourself to get ready for this? I next? was preparing myself for prison. Yeah. 
At that point in time, on you know, right after I realized that this was a kangaroo court and that the deal had already been sealed, I might as well get ready to go. So what do you do to get ready for something like that? Well, you just mentally get yourself um, ready to uh, uh, go to a war zone. It's like you ask a, you ask a nineteen year old boy, what was you thinking about on that plane ride to Vietnam or to uh, 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 Iraq? What, what were you thinking about on that plane ride to Iraq? You know what I'm saying? And so I know I'm going into a different kind of war zone, but I'm going into a war zone, and my whole idea is to survive in this war zone. Anybody who's been in prison or anybody who's experienced prison knows that being distracted and not focused can get you killed in prison. So I know I have to be on top of my game. I know I have to keep myself going. You know, going into prison, um, I had uh, went from like 165 to over 200 pounds. Basically, I'd gotten to where I was doing like eight, 900 push-ups a day. So you, you added 50 or so pounds of muscle before going there. Yeah. Tell me about that first day arriving at San Quentin. It was actually before dawn. And I was driving... On the bus. I mean, I was riding on the bus. And I'm looking at all the guys that are on the bus. It's about 10 or 11 of us. And I'm looking in all their eyes. And I see these black, blank stares in all of their eyes. You know, and I'm looking at them. Going, wow, man. There's no light in there. There's no light. And then I looked into the window of the bus in the reflection of mine. And there was no light in mine either. I'm like, wow, man. And I thought, right then I thought, this is how my ancestors felt in them slave ships, chained and bound in the bowels of a ship going to a foreign place. And when I got to the harbor, and I saw all the mother people chained and, you know, and shackled. I'm like, wow. It reminded me of slavery. They just used vans and buses instead of ships and dinghies. I'm serious. I felt like and I was on a slave trade. And you're going to a prison on the edge of the sea. Yeah. That's an old fortress. Old fortress. Look, I mean, it was all... Right there. I mean, if you were, if you could have seen what I seen, you would go, "Oh my God, I know what my father's ancestors felt like. I feel this. I'm being traded as a slave, cast into a foreign land." How much do you think race had to do with your? Your prosecution and your your conviction had a lot to do with it. It did. It did. You know, it don't always happen like that. But in my case, it was just it was so blatant. You know, and and, and race, um, um, geographic location, East Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah. Murder capital, world per capita. 
the other side of the tracks. Yeah, you know, for Palo yeah. Alto. Well, here's the thing: they they looked at it like, well, these guys from East Palo Alto and all that's going on and all that's going on in the paper. You know, they're black from East Palo Alto during the time when it's a murder capital of the world, drug infested, da da da. He must have done it. They didn't need much more. A jury didn't need much more help to convict. A prosecutor didn't need much more than a partial story to tell a jury to convince them that what they're thinking. Is right. Mm. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to that point when you got your sentence. Mm. Were you able to say goodbye to your family? And if so, tell me about that. I never really said goodbye to my family. Not like that. Because it was like going off to war, you know? I'll see you if I see you. Did you, were you able to say anything to your son, who was, I think, 11 years old at the time you were sent to prison? Well, not much. Not much. Me and my son, um, it, it really ate him up inside, you know, to see me locked up like that, and... I um I really really stressed to my son the importance of him getting himself together and making sure that he take care of his mom and, and do things right you know and that was one of the reasons why he um at the time you know he left school you know and went to work at 15 you know to help his mom and help her out and whatnot you know and he came to see me when he was about, I guess he's 14, when he came to see me. And uh, we were in Pelican Bay, and that's when lifers could still get family visits. And on family visit, my mother and father drove my son to Pelican Bay to see me. You know, and um, What kind of a visit do you get? They get to stay overnight. They get to stay overnight. Yeah. Yeah, we stayed in uh, um, in prison, but it's a cottage, like, you know. So it was you, your son, my mother, mother, and my father, and your father. Yeah, which was kind of cool, you know. And I got to spend some time with him, and I got to talk to my dad, you know. And my dad was dying, cancer. Yeah, yeah, it was eating him up. Um, it started up. It started out as a stomach ulcer. Guess where that came from? Your case? That exacerbated it. <laughs> that made it worse. And he started sliding downhill right after that. I saw my dad. My dad was big like me. Next time I'm in prison, I see him. He weighs about 150 pounds. Mm. Just skin and bones. Mm. And it was eating him up. Mm. You know? And my mother told me. She never told me a lot of this stuff while I was in prison. Because she kept a lot of stuff from me. But she told me. She said... I know the man I married, and I know how strong he is, you know. And she says, your father came into our bedroom and fell to his knees and slumped over the bed 
and cried like a baby and said, they locked up my son and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm Robert Polly with the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. Today, doing hard time for another man's crime, the Rick Walker story. Walker spent 12 years in California prisons for a murder he didn't commit before being released in 2003. So you said that um, before you went to prison, you thought of it as a war zone. Is that what you found when you got there? Yeah, very much so. Prison's a war zone. It's, I mean, you know, we, we had a nickname for Pelican Bay. We called Pelican Bay Beirut. Because you know how you 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 heard so much about Beirut and all the landmines that they were that were there in Beirut, right? Well, in Pelican Bay, there are human landmines, and you just step on one, and you know it, 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 it's liable to explode on you. It could be something as simple as asking a guy, "How you doing today?" You know, and he's gonna show you how he's doing today. Instead of tell you how he's doing today, he's gonna show you how he's gonna do. It. So, you know, you 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 learn to read people. What I learned in prison that there were two kind of people in prison. Really, three, but the majority of the people in prison is only two kinds: predators and prey. I wasn't about to be prey. Does that mean you wanted to be a predator? That does not mean that. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. There's there is a third kind, but you don't. You know, they're they're almost invisible. I hung with a, a group of really solid Christian brothers, you know, and it um it it changed my life. It did. You know, it was a life changing experience and. I became very spiritual, you know, and a lot of people say, uh, you found religion. I'm like, no, everybody finds that, right? But spirituality is something totally different. How do you, how do you distinguish them? Well, um, religion is basically um, following a bunch of uh, um, uh, traditions and not the word. See, in... in, in I, I said this at a Lutheran church. I said, some people walk around with just 10 pages in their Bible because it's the only 10 pages they believe in. So they virtually only walk around with 10 pages in their Bible. I believe it from Genesis to Revelations and from Revelations to Genesis. Forward and backwards. I believe it. And so if you follow the precepts and guidelines that are set before you, it's a life-changing experience, right? And And you can live like that. You just have to want to. You just like, well, I believe that part, but I'm not believing this part, you know, and I have to do this and I have to do that. Right? At what point did you get involved with these Christian inmates and uh, make that change for yourself? When I was in San Quentin. This is the first prison you went yeah, to? Yeah. When I was in San Quentin, I went to church in San Quentin. And I was in that church, and 
a spirit came over me. I mean, their music, their camaraderie, the joy that I felt in there, the peace. I mean, it touched me. So you were you were in prison knowing about your own innocence, but were you thinking that you might have to be there for the rest of your life? I was. I had come to the point where I felt like I, this is this is where I'm going to live for the rest of my life is in prison, right? But um, that's when I became mentally sick and physically sick, emotionally, you know. And then in 1998, uh, that changed. What happened then? In 1998, I just was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you, you say you were you were at a point where you were getting physically and mentally sick? Yeah. I had chronic asthma. I still remember I was taking 2,700 milligrams of theodophylline a month. Theophylline is an inhaler? Uh, it's No, it's a pill. I had two inhalers, pills, and the pills made my blood pressure go up, so they gave me pills to take my blood pressure down, and then I had pills to take because I was taking pills. And I'm like... This is crazy. Why am I killing myself? And really, nobody's even paying attention here. You know, I'm I'm slowly killing myself. I'm slowly stressing out here, and nobody even sees what's going on, right? And I just decided, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth me losing my life over this. I'm going to have to change my course I'm going to have to start thinking a different way. And like I said, in 98, I started on that. And by 2000, change man. So what were you like after that that change? I wasn't mad at the world anymore. I wasn't mad at anybody anymore. Because I know mad only affects me. I wasn't trying to um, uh, take what happened to me out on everybody else. I wasn't trying to search to blame or put the blame on anyone, right? Mm. During those years before the turnaround in 1998, during the darker times, Mm -hmm. uh, at a point when you were being called a murderer by the justice system, by the world, uh, being thought of as a murderer. Were there any low moments where you actually thought, I deserve this? Did it ever get to the point where it wore you down to where you felt? It did at at some point wear me down to the point where I was always asking, why me? You know, why, why does this happen to me? Why me? Why me? Right? Why me? Why me? And one day I got that answer. Why not you? Why'd it have to be somebody else? Why not you? In other words, you're not special. I'm not special. Why not me? If it, it could happen, what happened to me 
could happen to any man, woman, or child in this nation. Could be wrongly convicted of something and spend the rest of their life in prison. Bottom line is, why not me? Right? And one of the reasons that I believe it spiritually that it happened to me is because I can handle it. We were talking about race and the justice system. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know about race in the prison system. Um, it's said that it's very segregated, that inmates separate into racial groups. Sad, sad, sad thing. There are prison gangs in, in prison, and yeah, they stay within their own, but there's also um, segregation that's instituted by prison staff. For instance... Blacks and Mexicans can't be housed together in the same cell. Or whites and blacks. Or Mexicans and whites. How did you deal with that? Was the, the, the group that you got involved with probably cut across racial lines, I would think. Sure. We hugged and embraced. Uh, you know, it'd make other people cringe. A really, really good friend of mine, Vinny. <laughs> Vinny Vinny's a white guy that Vinny would walk up and hug me. Now he had respect to all the whites on the yard. He did. He's, he wasn't no joke. He'd been down and around for a long time. Which prison was this at? This was at Mule Creek. Okay. You know, he might not have tried this at Pelican Bay, but at Mule Creek, Vinny, Vinny walked up and kissed me on the cheek and said, <laughs> "Brother," you know, like that. You know what I'm saying? And we hugged and, um, you know, semi wrestled because that's not legal to do in prison, but. You know, we ruffled each other a little bit, you know what I'm saying, and then hugged and walked off. And then, like, the Aryan brothers would just shake their head, and then the blacks would be like, dude, why you be doing that, man? I said, because I love that dude, man. That's my partner, man. And because I'm in prison, you cats ain't going to change me, man. I am who I am. Kill me now and get it over with, or leave me the hell alone because I'm going to be who I am. And we'll return to our conversation with exoneree Rick Walker in just a moment. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. Now back to today's show. While Rick Walker was languishing in prison, thinking he might have to live out his life there, a few people were working to prove his innocence. One was a young attorney and family friend named Allison Tucker, who we'll hear from later in the show. She worked on his case for years and finally gained his release in June 2003. Another person working on his behalf was Rick's father. You know, you said... Um, that your father, um, in despair, had said there was nothing he could do for you when you were sent away, but there is something he did do. He 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 kind of hit the streets of East Palo Alto and started asking questions. He did. What did he do exactly? He became the investigator that my trial attorney never hired, and he went out and he found out in the streets of East Palo Alto actually what happened to this crime. At, at this crime, he started just 
asking people around town? Yeah, he went and asked, you know. And there was people that was basically close enough to me that would, you know what I'm saying? They would say, well, Mr. Walker, we, you know, we we can't talk to no police or nothing like that. You know, there's a code here, right? He says, but we can, I, he said, man, I can tell you, man. He said, your son ain't had nothing to do with this. He says, I know who the players were in this. He says, we know, everybody knows who did this, you know, but ain't nobody talking. What was he able to uncover with those questions? What did he actually find out that then contributed to the, the case for your exoneration? He found out who the other person was that was involved. Okay, so we had Rasan Bowers, who was the the initial suspect who then um, turned prosecution witness and, and, and nailed you. Right. And he was on the crime scene. His fingerprints have been found there. There was another... Mark Swanson. Another guy, Mark Swanson. Your dad found out about yeah, him. Yeah, he, he, he actually found out that Mark Swanson was the person that was there. He found yeah. out the whole story. Yeah. He died how many years into your incarceration? He died in 1996. 96, so about five years in. Yeah. And he never knew that the detective work that he did helped exonerate you ultimately how did you get the news of your exoneration and 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 learn of the fact that you would be released that's that's a pretty interesting story you know almost every question you're gonna ask me is a story behind it (laughs) how that happened was we're on lockdown at mule creek we're on lockdown it's southerners and northerners and these blacks are, and these are Latino gangs. Yeah, and and then certain black gangs, whatnot. Everybody's fighting at this time, you know. And they let one group out and another one, you know. And um, so um, we're on lockdown, and I'm just laying up there, and the door pops open. You know, the doors are electric. You know, they'll they um. They can open any single door they want to. And the door just, boop, it pops open about two inches. Well, the door pops open, and I'm on the bottom bunk, so immediately I get up, you know, to put security on on, on our cell, and I look, and I look around. You mean uh, put security on your cell in case some other inmate's making a move of some kind? Yeah, it might be, a, 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 it might, it might be an officer with an inmate, making a move that oh i see that that happens mm. you know they might have popped your door and they popped the cup they what if they popped the whole row and somebody really is trying to get at you you know as a perfect time they pop that row and somebody breaks down there and comes in your cell with a knife and you're laying on the bunk you're defenseless so i get up to put security you know and that's just something you do when you're in, 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 in prison, you know, you put security on yourself. And so I get up and I look around and I'm looking around and uh, my cellmate goes, what they pop the door for? I go, I don't know. And I looked up at the officer in the tower and he's looking at me. So I swing the door open. I go, yeah. He goes, Walker. Well, yeah. He goes, you need to come down here and make a phone call, man. I'm like, oh, who's dead now? You know, first thing that runs my mind, you know, you're on lockdown. You only open up and make a phone call. You need to call your family. Something tragic happened. I'm like, you need to call your attorney. I'm like, huh? 
said, okay. Get the, um, my attorney's number. I called my attorney. There's a block on the phone. There's never a block on the phone at this law firm. Something weird happened, and there was a block on the phone. So I go back up, shut the door. About 15 minutes later, boop, door pops open again. They said, hey, you need to call your attorney. I said, hey, man, there's a block on my attorney's phone, and this has never happened. He goes, all right. And I shut the door back again. Well, he knew something. He did. He knew something, right? But he can't say over the airwaves, as we call them, <laughs> what he knows. But so... They pop the door again, and they say, okay, well, they seem to think they got the block off the phone so you can call your attorney, uh, so we, why don't you come down and try your attorney again? I'm like, all right. I'm down there. Get on the phone. phone still has a block. And at this point, it clicked in. Um, I'm down there. They keep calling me out for this phone call. So I might as well make a phone call to somebody. And it just clicked in my head. When all else fails, call home. Call mom. So I called my mother. And I'm recalling the whole thing. It, it, it gets me emotional because I called my mother. And she said, Rick. You're coming home. I said, what? I'm coming home. She goes, yeah, you're coming home. I said, Mom, don't play with me. I don't know why I said that to her. Don't play with me, Mom. I'm, you know, I ain't in the mood right now. She says, no, Rick. Call Allison. She'll tell you you're coming home. You're coming home. Finally, you're coming home. I said, you, you're serious. She goes, yeah, you're coming home. I go, oh, my God. Thank you. I'm coming home. And so... I'm getting ready to go back upstairs and my counselor and a couple of sergeants that know me, they come walking in there and my counselor calls me into the, in my, into the office and the, uh, my counselor looked at me and said, it couldn't happen to a better man. Just like that. Mm -hmm. Rick, I've got this um, photograph from a newspaper. I'm sure you'll remember this one. Oh, yeah. Very famous photograph. <laughs> this was taken when? That was taken a couple of hours after I reached home. Actually, on my mom's property. And you are um, you're leaning against a, a car. It looks like maybe a Chevy. I don't know. Old one. 50s. It's a 1955 Fleetwood Cadillac. And uh, your mom... Myrtle has you her arms around you, and she has a look of bliss on her face. Her eyes are closed, and you're just looking very thoughtful. She got her son back. What was, what were you feeling at that time? There was a lot going through my head at that time. Um, there was, uh, you know, it was, think about this. 
nine o'clock in the morning, I'm standing at a cell door waiting for transport, which is a, a person, to take me to R&R, which is receiving and release, so that I can go to court and be dismissed the charges formally, and I go home. I'm sitting there waiting at 9 o'clock in the morning. Can you imagine 9 o'clock in the morning that you're waiting there, and then 3 o'clock that very afternoon, you lean against that Cadillac in your mom's <laughs> arms the very same day, right? So <laughs> there was a ton of things going through my head, but most of all, it was like, it's really over. This 12 and a half year nightmare is really over. Well, the nightmare may have been over, but the story doesn't end there. Next week on the 7th Avenue Project, Rick Walker's life after exoneration and the battle to get compensation for his wrongful imprisonment. In the meantime, as I mentioned earlier in the show, we're going to get a little background on Rick Walker's conviction and how the justice system failed him so badly from attorney Allison Tucker. She spent more than a decade off and on pro bono working to win his freedom. Allison, um, how did you become aware of Rick Walker's case? My mother and Rick's mother were friends because they served on school boards in neighboring towns. And shortly after Rick was convicted of murder, my mother called me and asked me if I would agree to have lunch with her and with her friend Myrtle Walker because Myrtle was upset about Rick's con- conviction. And that was the first time that I had heard about Rick or, uh, or about his trial and conviction. And you were at Stanford Law School at the time. I was. I was halfway through my third year in law school. So I, I assume you took a look at, at the trial records and uh, at the case against him, and at some point you became convinced he was innocent? When I was a law school student, I uh, started helping his parents investigate leads they were finding in the community. And the thing that persuaded me that Rick might very well be innocent was that his parents had had leads from several different sources, I think three independent sources, um, about all explaining what had really happened in, in the, the murder, and none of them uh, pointing to Rick. What evidence was there connecting Rick to this murder? Well, the evidence that the jury heard was the testimony of a drug dealer who had murdered Lisa Hopewell and who claimed that he committed the murder in in participation of big domestic violence uh, crime that, that Rick Walker had really planned, that he was essentially an unwilling participant in Rick Walker's uh, crime. That was the primary evidence. Everything else was uh, secondary, minor, and, and, and not very relevant. This is Rasan Bowers, the, the yeah. drug dealer. Yeah. And he was picked up by the police um, as their initial suspect, and, and he then came up with the story that Rick Walker was involved? Rasan Bowers was picked up by the police because he left fingerprint evidence on the duct tape that was used to kill Lisa Hopewell. And when the police first interviewed him, he said he knew nothing about the crime. Uh, When they confronted him with the fingerprint evidence, he said, well, I participated, but I was an unwilling tool of three different guys. And he described two white guys with 45s jumping out of a closet and Rick Walker as the three people who had made him participate in this crime. And then the authorities uh, 
pressed him about uh, the involvement of the two white guys with 45s, and he admitted that part was a lie. But he retold the story all over again, implicating Rick Walker as the, the heavy in the crime, and uh, they let him tell that story to the jury. How did he uh, come up with Rick Walker's name in the first place? Well, I think he knew that Rick Walker had been a boyfriend of the murder victim, and, and boyfriends are often suspects when young women are killed. So was there was there any other evidence other than Rasan Bauer's um, story that uh, Rick Walker was part of this crime? No, there really wasn't. There was, uh, I guess you'd call it circumstantial evidence, like the fact that he had been seen with duct tape, but he was a, a car mechanic, so the, and duct tape is a fairly common thing for a for a guy to have. So so that wasn't um, terribly incriminating. Um, and then there was some other evidence that was also, it turns out, um, false testimony. Uh, but there was a woman who took the stand and testified about Rick being uh, violent with, with her when she was his girlfriend. And it turns out that that was, uh, well, that was testimony she later recanted when I interviewed her. And she admitted that she uh, hoped to get the DA's favor in dealing with her drug convictions and that that was why she... Uh, testified the way she did. Mm. Now, during the trial, as I understand it, initially, Rasan Bowers was presented as a co-defendant, um, along with Rick, sitting at the uh, defense table, um, defending himself against a murder charge. And at some point, he turned into a prosecution witness. And, and this apparently was planned from the beginning, but not necessarily disclosed to the defense. I think that's right, and that's one of the things that was really prosecutorial overreaching in the case. Uh, you said um, prosecutorial overreaching um, in this, this apparent strategy of having a defendant turn into a prosecution witness partway through the trial. Does, is this something that sort of falls into a gray area in the law, then, um, as uh, inadvisable but not necessarily illegal? No, I think it it really was improper, but the problem is, and, and it it created two problems in this case. One problem is it, it created the false impression with the jury that Rasan Bowers was somehow credible because he had this late um, crisis of conscience and he had to now, uh, you know, come clean. In fact, he had, uh, from the start, been trying to blame other people for the crime, um, and even wrote a really ghoulish letter that he signed in blood the night before the trial began, um, pinning the, the ex- expressing how upset he was that, that he might have to uh, go to trial on the case. So one problem was it made Rasan Bowers look more credible than he really was, and the other problem is um, Rick Walker's attorney for whatever collection of reasons, didn't properly investigate the case. And I think because he hadn't been told that Rasan Bowers would be, would be the primary witness against Rick Walker, he figured he didn't really need to investigate the case because the prosecution didn't really have any, any evidence against, against Rick. Mm. And it was only after Rasan Bowers pled and it became crystal clear that Rasan Bowers was going to be uh, the star witness in the case that Rick Walker's conviction uh, suddenly looked looked likely, and the fact that his lawyer didn't do any investigation suddenly became a problem. Mm. Now, at the point you got involved in this, um, Rick Walker had already been sent to, to San Quentin, is that right? I got involved when Rick had been convicted by the jury, and his sentencing was uh, pending. 
so, um, and this is when I was a law school student and I was investigating. I didn't formally represent him at the time, but I was kind of informally as a student trying to help him and help his family figure out what they could do with leads that his parents were starting to uh, come up with about who had really killed Lisa Hopewell. Were you planning to go into criminal law at that point? No, I wasn't. I'd had, uh, I think, two classes in criminal law. Um, I was uh, planning to do something else, but it's a problem that I felt like I, I just couldn't walk away from because it seemed like the justice system had got it wrong. Uh, now, you said uh, as you got deeper into this, some leads surfaced, uh, in part through the efforts of Rick Walker's parents. Um, Rick Walker told me his father actually sort of played private detective there on the streets of East Palo Alto and, and got some leads that implicated not Rick Walker, but another guy who who the police hadn't gone after. Um, his name is Mark Swanson. Right. And uh, in the end, he's the one who turned out to be the accomplice of Rasan Bowers in this murder of Lisa Hopewell. Right. The jury heard from Rasan Bowers that Rick Walker was a terrible, evil murderer and that Rasan Bowers was an unwilling uh, participant in the murder. And, in fact, it looks like Rasan Bowers was the driving force um, the, the, the mastermind of the crime, and that his friend Mark Swanson was kind of along for the ride and in the wrong place at the wrong time. What did it finally take uh, to overturn Rick Walker's conviction, and, and why did it take 12 years? The way our criminal justice system works is once there's been a jury verdict that somebody's guilty, the only way that that verdict is overturned is if you can prove legal error in the trial. And this was a case where, uh, yeah, there was prosecutorial overreaching, and yeah, there were some other things that really weren't quite right, but the the compelling reason that that Rick needed to be set free was because the facts that were told to the jury just weren't true. And the real truth never never came before the court because the wit- either the witnesses who were there lied or the witnesses who knew things didn't didn't come into court and testify. And that's just not the kind of error that our appellate process is set up to fix. So the reason it took so long to get Rick out is we had to come up with evidence, not just to cast doubt on whether or not Rick was uh, was guilty, but to almost prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was innocent. Um, that is an incredibly high standard. It, it is, and it's not literally the words in the law. Uh, I think the, the words of the law are uh, evidence that points unerringly to innocence, but that amounts to pretty much the same thing. And it's a very high standard, and the reason it's a high standard is because society has an interest in not continuing to revisit all the time convictions that, that a jury has already um, has already reached. But the problem is when the facts the jury hears are wrong, as they were in Rick's case, you get a real injustice as a result. Mm. And in, in the end, then, you took your new evidence uh, to court, and what sort of proceedings um, took place in order to have him declared innocent? Well, what I did in this case is before taking my evidence to court, I took it to the district attorney who had convicted him. And there were a number of reasons why I did that, and I would have gone to court without the approval of the DA if I had to. But uh, it turned out to have been the right thing to do here because uh, the DA was certainly skeptical when I first brought my evidence there. But 
They did what a good DA ought to do. They looked at the evidence that I brought to them. They went out and conducted interviews. Um, and over a period of months, interviewed a lot of a lot of people, often at my suggestion, but not always. Um, and they came to the conclusion in the DA's in the DA's office that Rick Walker was innocent. And because they came to that conclusion, um, the the beginning of the legal process was a little bit unusual. Uh, Rick Walker was brought to the court in Santa Clara County, and I moved to have him uh, set free that day, uh, pending the filing of my habeas corpus petition and pending a finding from the court that he'd been wrongly convicted. And normally, a, a court would not release somebody before they'd been persuaded that he was wrongly convicted, but they did that in this case because the DA said, uh, that's right, Your Honor, we agree Mr. Walker should be released. And so he was. Does it speak well of the district attorney's office that they were willing to do this then? Absolutely. It's a it's a hard thing to admit that you made a mistake, and uh, it's, it's got to be a very hard thing for this office to admit it that they made uh, that they made as big a mistake as this, um, because uh, it was a terrible injustice that Rick spent uh, a dozen years almost in, in state prisons. Um, but the DA's office did the right thing when they when they finally confronted the evidence and admitted that and said we have no objection to his being. Return to freedom. Um, in the meantime, what about Rasan Bowers, who had made a deal with the prosecution and actually gotten a lighter sentence than Rick Walker in the, the initial trial? Well, Rasan got a conviction for second-degree murder, which I think uh, meant he was eligible for parole right about the time that, that Rick was exonerated. And now that it is clear to the prison system that Rasan Bowers' testimony was false and that his deal with the DA was premised on this lie and on his willingness to point the finger at an innocent man, I I think it's unlikely he'll be released anytime soon. So can you tell me, Allison, do you know how many hours cumulatively you spent on, on, on Rick's um, affairs? I spent hundreds of hours on Rick's exoneration. Why did you do it? You know, the the, the truth is, I was skeptical it was going to ever work, but I felt like the least I could do was try. And I didn't really know what to do, but I knew that if I did one step at a time, the best that I knew how, I would have done everything I could do. And uh, for a long time, it looked like I would do everything I could do and nothing would come of it. And then we got to a point where it looked like um, it really might work, and that was really thrilling and wonderful and till the day I retire from the law it will probably be the most important thing I've I've done professionally. Allison Tucker is an attorney and partner at Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco where she specializes in litigation. The show is the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And finally today one more memory from Rick Walker. It's worth a listen. During those years when you were in there and you knew about your innocence and you had some friends and family who were convinced of your innocence, the majority of people who met you probably assumed you were guilty. They probably... In prison? In prison. I'll just tell you like this. Everybody in prison, everybody in prison is innocent. Okay. I've heard that one before. <laughs> okay. I've heard so that. So my story is no <laughs> different. If I cry innocent, 
What is it? What's the reaction? You're just another guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. right, buddy. Yeah. Get in line. <laughs> hey, the line starts way back there. Get in line. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. There was one sergeant who just used to pound me in prison. You know, and I'm like, I'm, I'd be talking to somebody else about my innocence. You know, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, oh, you know what I'm saying? Just give me a real, real hard time. Do you know the day that I that it was announced at Mule Creek State Prison? It was announced throughout the staff that they had an innocent man in there. And when he found out it was me, when they came to release me, they usually send a couple of officers to come to your cell they get you and you get all your property that you're going to take with you and you take it downstairs and you put it in a cart and you you push it across the yard to R&R which is receiving and release and they check you out and you you and you go right this sergeant's at my door and he's standing there and he does like this he signals them to open the door open the door yeah. open the door and he stood there and looked at me. He said, you ready to go? With that tough exterior that he has. And I'm yeah, I'm ready. And I get my stuff and I get downstairs. And we leave out of the building. And he stops me. And he says, you know what, man? Normally you would see officers do this. And I'd send them. He says, but I had to come do this one myself. He said, you've changed my entire outlook in this short time. You've changed it. He says, because I always believed that nobody in prison was innocent. I didn't care. I didn't. He says, I gave you a hard time while you were here. He says, but you know what I'm going to do? He says, I'm going to personally walk you to R&R and see that you get out of here as fast as can possibly be. I'm going to use my stripes, in other words, and I'm going to make sure that everything's taken care of for you and that you're cared for you while you sit there and this and that, you know. And uh, I said, thank you, man. Thank you. And he goes, I owe you an apology. Right? I said, well, first apologize to yourself for what you believed in it. <laughs> you know, and he said, I accept your apology after that. But first you know, apologize to yourself that you made yourself so hard and that you couldn't be possibly believe this. And he says, yeah, you're right. And so, in I guess in silence, he did. He walked me over there and he asked the clerk for one of my red IDs. You know, a red ID is a privilege ID and a green ID is just your regular ID. And he says, I want, your, I want one of his red cards. And I said, what you going to do with that? He says, I'm a thumbtack it to the wall at whatever station I work at, and I'm going to look at your picture every day to remind me that there are people like you in here, right? And that I need to think before I make judgment on a person. I said, you know what, man? I really appreciate that. And I thought to myself, I've already begun to change people's minds and that was a great thing you know i'll remember that story i'll tell it to the grandbabies 
And that's it for this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Join me next week at noon on Sunday when we'll pick up with Rick Walker's life after prison. I'm Robert Polly. See you next week. They say everything can be replaced Yet every distance is not near So I remember every face Of every man who put me here See my light come shining from the west down to the east. Any day now, any day now, I shall be released. They say every man needs protection They say every man must fall Yet I swear I see my